Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Driven to anger, one lawmaker tells Detroit to step on it and increase fuel efficiency in cars fast. I think the Congress is moving on. You're going to have increased efficiency requirements coming from the Congress. I think the issue is over. I think you've lost that issue. I think your position is yesterday forever. Also, what you can't see and what's not being regulated might hurt you. As nanotechnology gets big, concerns grow about its effects to our health and the environment. I think what's important is that we let people know what we know and what we don't know, because I kind of want to know what risks am I taking. And if they're unknown, I want to know that too. And making music out of mud, a student minds geological data for sound. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Carwood. After sitting in neutral for two decades, fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks could soon get a jump start. For years, U.S. automakers have effectively resisted attempts in Congress to increase standards for what's called CAFE, short for Corporate Average Fuel Economy. Now concerns about high gas prices and global warming are pushing Congress to act. But automakers and their Democratic allies are pushing back. Living on Earth's Jeff Young tells us some powerful Motor City lawmakers want to weaken mileage standards and prevent states from regulating the greenhouse gases coming out of cars. 35 miles per gallon by the year 2020. That's the fuel economy standard the U.S. Senate will soon consider. It would be the biggest mileage boost in decades, and it brought the CEOs of Detroit's big three automakers to Capitol Hill. General Motors chief Rick Wagner told senators at a luncheon that kind of increase could cost thousands of dollars for every car GM makes. Wagner argued instead for things like more alternative fuels. We can and we will improve fuel efficiency. We think there are ways to do it that are smarter than just the exclusive reliance on CAFE. It's an approach that's worked for Wagner in the past, but this year the auto industry's not getting much traction on the Hill, even among senators who voted its way in the past, like North Dakota Democrat Byron Dorgan. I have previously voted against CAFE standards, but I just want you to know I think the issue is over. I think you've lost that issue. I think your position is yesterday forever. Senators heaped on the criticism, and after that less-than-appetizing lunch, GM's Wagoner told reporters he could see the writing on the wall. My sense is that there will be increases in CAFE, so you know, I'm not coming from a very good bargaining position to say anything other than I expect that that's going to happen. But Detroit's leaders are hoping for some escape clauses in the legislation, and they're counting on some powerful Democrats to provide them. In the Senate, that's Carl Levin of Michigan who argues that CAFE standards discriminate against U.S. automakers, who tend to make more trucks. It's perverse. It works against American jobs with not a darn bit of benefit to the air. Levin proposes an alternative with lower mileage targets and more time for the industry to meet them. It would also let automakers avoid efficiency rules if they pledge to use advanced technology. 
And automakers are also fighting back with a million-dollar ad campaign. Why can't they let me make the choice? I'm all for better fuel economy. But for me, safety is my top concern. This radio ad airing in a dozen states dusts off one of the industry's arguments, that higher MPG means reduced safety. Contact your senators. Tell them fuel economy is important, but we shouldn't put safety in the backseat. But a number of recent studies cast doubt on this blood-on-the-highway argument. Tom Wenzel is a scientist who studies auto safety for Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Wenzel co-wrote a new report by the International Council on Clean Transportation, summarizing the latest research. There's many technologies available to improve vehicle fuel economy that would have no effect on vehicle safety. So we shouldn't let the old argument that high fuel economy vehicles necessarily mean less safe vehicles, we shouldn't let that stand in the way of increasing the fuel economy of the new vehicle fleet. Recent opinion polls show strong support for boosting mileage and acting on global warming. A dozen states have responded with proposed rules limiting greenhouse gas emissions from autos. California led the way and got a big boost from a landmark Supreme Court ruling this spring in the case Massachusetts versus EPA. The justices said the Clean Air Act gives the government authority to regulate those tailpipe emissions. In an unexpected twist in the fuel efficiency debate, a top lawmaker is now trying to block that Supreme Court ruling and those states that would use it to control global warming pollution. We need one good, strong regulator. We don't need a whole lot of people messing around. That's Congressman John Dingell of Michigan, one of the most senior Democrats in Congress, chair of the powerful House Energy Committee, and a staunch defender of the auto industry in his home state. Dingell says the Supreme Court decision will bring a regulatory mess. The Supreme Court didn't do anything constructive. All they did was to say that the Congress had not done a good job in drafting the legislation. Let me remind you, I wrote the Clean Air Law. I know what the Congress intended. We are returning to what the Congress intended and to a system which, in fact, will work. The attorneys general of 14 states opposed Ingalls' proposal, as does the second-highest-ranking Democrat in the House Energy Committee, Ed Markey of Massachusetts. This bill is cutting the legs out from under the states just as they are starting to sprint forward on carbon pollution regulation. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi of California also says she could not support a bill that blocks states from regulating greenhouse gases from autos. That could set up a battle between two of the most powerful Democratic leaders, Pelosi and Dingell. It also means the road to higher fuel standards has a few bumps ahead. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. There are a lot of big environmental stories. Today we're considering small things, very small things. Nanotechnology. The U.S. Commerce Department calls nanotech the next industrial revolution. Nanotechnology is the manipulation of matter at the atomic level and using the knowledge to manufacture products and develop industrial processes. The industry is relatively small right now, but it's growing fast. In just a little over a year, the number of nanotech products on the market has doubled to nearly 500 You'll find nanotech used in skin creams, washing machines, bed sheets, and bowling balls. Nanotech has arrived. The question is, are we ready for it? Joining me from Zurich, Switzerland, is Professor Vicky Calvin, Executive Director of ICON, the International Council on Nanotechnology, and Head of the Center for Biological and Environmental Nanotechnology at Rice University. Professor, welcome. 
thanks for having me on the show. So I had no idea nanotech was in so many things. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing because I think when this all started, it was supposed to be the next big thing, and we didn't know it's the actual thing. It's here, and we use it, and it, it makes our lives better in some interesting ways. So what would be a product that you use with nanotech in it? Well, I'd say one product that I'm happy to use is uh, antimicrobial uh, toys, actually, that have a coating on them that resists the development of bacteria that can be damaging to my kids. So uh, to me, that's a great trade-off because uh, anybody who's kids know when they get sick, they're pretty pitiful. And if you can avoid that outcome, um, I think that's a great thing. And so that's one example. And the other, of course, is sunscreens. Uh, which I also use because I live in a, a warm climate with lots of sun. So those are two products that I think uh, nanotech's benefits are clear. Do any of the uh, nanotech products give you the willies? Yeah, they do. You know, I study. That's part of what we think about at Rice is the sort of the good side and the, and the other side, which is nothing great comes without its cost. You've got to think that through. So there's some sunscreens on the market that they have different types of nanomaterials in them. And I, you know, have thought long and hard about it. And I, a particular type that I use, I like the type that has zinc oxide in it. Because zinc is always good for you. It's hard to make it not good for you, even when it's nano. And the other option is one that has titanium dioxide. And that's just a little bit, you know, more uncertain for my tastes. It's a personal call. But is it the product or the chemical or the size that matters? It is an interesting question. I mean, I'm a chemist, right? So it all boils down to what is it, you know, the composition, what's the stuff? Is it gold? Is it, you know, carbon? So that matters. But, you know, size is a very powerful parameter. I mean, if, you know, you can wear a silver ring and it looks silver, but if you made that same silver nano-sized, you could eat it and turn yourself blue, you know, so things are really different when they're small. They do different stuff. And particularly in biological systems like us, they can um, have a lot more transport, get into nooks and crannies that larger materials can't. That's the origin of their great power in medicine. And it's also the thing that can give you the willies. Well, I think the issue is, oh, do we have federal regulations in place that can keep up with this technology? Yeah, you know, and it's that's a challenge for our regulatory agencies. I mean, we all want really rapid technology, and we want it to make our lives better. And it, in large part, it has. And I think that, you know, regulatory agencies have to invest in looking at new technologies and really trying to get ahead of the curve instead of behind the curve and thinking about them. And I I honestly don't know if the oversight is good enough because we actually can't see the future yet. Certainly, they've been cautious in regulating it. I wouldn't say they've been overprotective. And that means that a lot of economies and businesses have been able to develop. But, you know, the question that all of us have is, you know, we really hope that the businesses that are profiting from these products, that they have taken to heart the great responsibility that I think they hold if they're profiting from the, this new technology that's ahead of the curve in regulation, they got to get it right. There are no specific nanotech laws on the books. No, they're not. And there's a lot of debate in our agencies about do they need to have specific nanotech laws. I think that strikes fear in the hearts of many, many people because, um, you know, nanotech, while it's new, is at the end of the day, it's chemicals, it's materials, things we, you know, we know how to think about them and how to evaluate their risks. I think that the challenge is that some of our assumptions about how materials interact with us, with biological systems, have to be a little different when it's small. And certainly, if we build a whole big, gigantic research program in this country and globally in the fact that nanotech is new and it's different and the materials offer us really special properties, 
probably some of those properties could translate into biological or environmental properties. So that's why things like labeling become really important because then consumers, people can make their own decisions because I kind of want to know what risks am I taking? And if they're unknown, I want to know that too. Professor Colvin, I know that you're uh, in Zurich, Switzerland, attending a conference that's being held by Swiss Re. It's one of the world's largest reinsurers, uh, really big money. Why are they interested in nanotechnology? Well, you, you know, Swiss Re is a, a fascinating company that is very forward-thinking in engaging all kinds of different stakeholders, you know, the general public, government, scientists like myself, other industry, in conversations about risk. So Swiss Re has been one of the cutting-edge companies in understanding that you don't want an us-versus-them mentality. You really want to understand and create high-quality technical data. And you need to do that not just with scientists, but actually with everybody in the room. And that's actually affected some of the research I've done, you know, just listening to, for example, a woman talk about how she doesn't want to take any risk when she uses her mascara has made me realize, hey, you know, I want to know what's in products. I want to do the chemistry or the analytical chemistry to figure out what is in these systems and why does it work the way it does. So Swiss Re's focus, I think, is not on a particular issue. I don't think they're worried, but I think it's just in engaging and making sure that people are talking. Well, Professor Colvin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Dr. Vicki Colvin is the director of the Center for Biological and Environmental Nanotechnology at Rice University. To consider more small things and hear an interview with nanoscientist Andrew Maynard of the Woodrow Wilson Center, go to our website at LOE.org. Coming up, growing evidence linking chemicals in the environment to breast cancer in people. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, eavesdrop on the globe, Google style. But first, for years now, many activists and a growing number of scientists have been convinced there's a link between environmental contaminants and cancer in people, especially breast cancer. Now that concern seems to be emerging from the margins to the mainstream. Recently, five major research institutions reviewed more than 900 scientific studies, which identified over 200 chemicals that cause breast cancer in animals. Now the researchers believe these chemicals, found widely in pesticides, cosmetics, dyes, drugs, gasoline, and diesel exhaust, may be linked to breast cancer in humans. Their results were published online by the American Cancer Society. Deverly Davis is director of the Center for Environmental Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. Dr. Davis recently spoke with Living on Earth host Steve Kerwood about the connections between toxic pollutants and breast cancer. Now, how might pollution work to cause or promote breast cancer? I mean, what's going on here? And what about men? We know that the more hormones in a woman's body over her lifetime, the greater the chance that she will develop breast cancer. The earlier in life she starts her period, if she has no children, the more hormonal cycles she will have and the greater her risk of breast cancer. We also know that there are a number of environmental materials that can act like hormones. And these hormone-acting or hormone-mimicking compounds can also play a role in contributing to the increased risk of breast cancer. So you have natural hormones that the body makes itself, and you have synthetic agents that can act like hormones. And the combination, we think, is what results in breast cancer in many cases. Because think of this. Only 1 in 10 women who develop breast cancer do so 
because they inherited a defective gene from their parents. That means that 9 out of 10 women who get the disease were born with healthy genes, and yet something happened to those genes in the course of their lifetime to give them breast cancer. Now, if it seems that 9 out of 10 breast cancers aren't related to some inherited uh, defective gene, um, why do so many cases of breast cancer seem to run in families? Well, if you're an adopted child, your risk of breast cancer and other cancers parallels that of the family that you grow up in, not the one into which you were born. We know that because in Scandinavian countries, they have detailed registries to follow people from birth through death, and they've followed adopted children, and they've found this out. What we understand is that if cancer runs in your family, it could be because your family had similar eating patterns, similar lifestyle patterns, as well as lived in the same area. So this report says that there are, what, some 216 chemicals with carcinogenic properties that uh, could be responsible for breast cancer. What sorts of chemicals are we talking about here? Well, let's first establish this. Every chemical that we know for sure causes cancer in humans has been shown to cause it in animals when experimentally tested. That's a very important fact. Now, the question is, is the obverse true? Namely, is every chemical that we know that causes cancer in animals, should it be regarded as though it causes cancer in humans? I happen to think, yes, it should. We should pay attention to these animal tests, and that's what this study of Silent Spring Institute has done. They've identified 216 chemicals that are shown to cause breast cancer in animals when tested under controlled conditions. Some of the chemicals that they're talking about are very widely spread in our environment. For example, 1,3-butadiene is a common air pollutant. It's in gasoline. It's obviously found in the urban environment wherever there are cars or trucks or buses. Benzene is a similar pollutant found in gasoline and therefore in, in engine exhaust. Methylene chloride, now you may not know it, but some furniture polish, some fabric cleaners, and a lot of wood sealants in the past have used methylene chloride. And although it is supposed to be being phased out, you don't know whether it's in these compounds now or not. So almost anywhere, it seems, then, that you could get exposed to a chemical that could give you breast cancer. Well, let's just say the exposures are widespread, and that's why it's really important that we take another look at the way we are organizing our society and the kinds of chemicals that we're using every day. We think that there are alternatives that can be used. Here in Pittsburgh, we are leading the way with green chemistry. We don't want to wait till we have proof in humans that the chemicals that we now know cause cancer in animals will do so in humans. But in many cases, we already have that evidence for some chemicals, and we ought to act on the basis of what we know now to continue to reformulate and redesign our products. Big business is going to make a lot of money by doing that. Now, how do we look at 216 chemicals one at a time? I mean, how do you make sound policy out of that? That is the $64,000 or perhaps the $64 million question. One of the things that's being done in Europe now is the REACH program. They are re-registering and evaluating chemical hazards by asking manufacturers to give them information that, that will be used to re-register and reconsider uh, some of the highest volume chemicals in commerce today. Dr. Davis, what's the purpose of releasing a meta-study like this? Uh, is it called to regulators, to individuals? I think the purpose of this study was two things. First, it was to show that there's a robust and extensive literature out there, studies in animals, studies in cell cultures, and some studies in humans. The second point of this review is, frankly, you have to see where it's been published. It's being published in the major journal of the American Cancer Society. 
the American Cancer Society has been somewhat slow to embrace the environment as an issue. And I think the fact the American Cancer Society published it is really signaling a sea change in public attitudes about the environment. Why is it that while there's a great deal of work that's been done to look at the link between diet and breast cancer, there's a lot less that links environmental contaminants in breast cancer? Well, there are two reasons. First is it's hard to do the research. It's not easy. Life doesn't come at you as we test it in these animals. You don't get exposed to one chemical at a time. You are exposed to a mixture. Life is a mixture. It's hard to study mixtures. And right now, the funding for public health research is at an all-time low. So we're not asking the question. We're not collecting the data. It's difficult to do it well. That's for starters. The second reason is that if you don't look, if you don't ask, you can't find it. And right now, we are not asking this question, even though it's a hard question to ask. We don't, for example, when you go into the hospital, you go to your doctor, the doctor doesn't ask you, where do you work? What chemicals do you work with? Where do you live? What's in your drinking water? What are your good and bad habits? Those questions are not generally asked. So where do we go from here? There are all these chemicals that can cause breast cancer or promote it in women. What should people take away from this news? Well, there is some good news, Steve. The good news part comes from the work on nutrition. What we can do, knowing that we live in the modern world with these exposures, is be vigilant about what we eat and where we live. And the way I say it is it's important to try to live high in the watershed above pollution and eat low on the food chain, which means you want to eat foods that are low in pesticides. The fatter the food, the more the opportunity it has to absorb many toxic chemicals. So having a diet that is low in animal fat is important. At this point, we have no excuse not to act based on this information, but it's not a reason for panic. It's a reason to strengthen our resolve to make sure that we eat better and exercise and reduce our exposures and do the same thing with our families and children. Dr. Deverly Davis spoke with Living on Earth host Steve Kerwood. She's director of the Center for Environmental Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. Her new book is called The Secret History of the War on Cancer. Well, concerns in Europe about chemicals have led to a new law that just went into effect there. It's called REACH short for Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals. And the European Union law is certainly far-reaching and controversial. For the first time, makers of more than 30,000 chemicals must test and prove their substances and the products they're used in are safe for people and the environment. The law also applies to U.S. companies that export chemicals to the EU. The American Chemistry Council, which represents U.S. manufacturers, opposed the 800-page-long regulation, charging it was overly complex and costly. But Steve Russell of the Chemistry Council says the law is the law. At the moment, U.S. companies are working very hard to make sure they're prepared to comply with REACH. Uh, We think the jury is still out on whether it will deliver its uh, anticipated benefits, at least in the way that its uh, proponents anticipate. Proponents here say we should also have something like REACH because current U.S. chemical regulations are largely voluntary. Still, Joel Tickner, a professor of environmental health at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, thinks the European law will change the way American companies do business in the U.S. 
I think it'll have a positive effect ultimately. It's going to force companies to start thinking about how to design safer chemicals and to think about the toxicity of chemicals that have been essentially allowed to be used for the past 40 years without any regulation. The U.S. exports about $14 billion worth of chemicals to Europe each year. Complying with the new EU law is estimated to cost American manufacturers about $14 million annually. Log on to Google Earth and you get a bird's eye view of the globe. That is if the bird is a high-flying satellite able to see everything from the Great Wall of China to the car in your driveway. But you might want to pull down your window shades because Google has started offering street-level views that allow you to peek inside buildings. Still, Google software is a great way to see the planet, and now you can use it to hear the Earth as well. This is what sunrise in Sonoma Valley, California sounds like. Dr. Bernie Krauss recorded it. It's one of over 1,200 locations he's recorded over a 40-year career. Dr. Krauss is a bioacoustician and president of Wild Sanctuary, an online audio archive. He recently teamed up with Google Earth to add sound to their service, and he joins me from a studio in California. Dr. Krauss, welcome. Thank you, Bruce. Boy, who knew it was such a racket in Sonoma Valley, California? Can you believe that? This is one of those rare spots in Sonoma Valley that hasn't been developed for wine and grapes. And it's particularly beautiful because it's one of those places that sounds like the earth sounded like 150 or 200 years ago. Well, how does your work, your recordings, work with Google Earth? How do you add sound to a map? Well, if you can imagine the map, and when you zoom into Google Earth, you, you zoom in from outer space to a point... And typically what happens is it's, it looks kind of like a silent movie. There's this big globe out there, and then you move into a spot. And I began to layer sounds to these spots, and it, it became so engaging. We just thought, well, maybe, maybe we should really try to approach Google and see if they'd be interested in having it as a layer to their material. So if I go to Google Earth, how do I click on, on these sounds? Well, what you would do is when it gets up... You go to the lower left-hand part of the page, and you'll click a little box that'll say Soundscape. And when that box is checked, as you're zooming into that spot, the sound will get louder and louder and louder to the point where, you know, when you're a couple of thousand feet above that particular site, you'll hear the, the full range of sound. So I'm going to zoom over to Corcovado National Park in Costa Rica, and let's listen to what we get. What is that, Dr. Krause? Well, in the background, you're hearing a howler monkey. And then you're hearing little tree frogs, little peepers, and some insects. When did you make this? Uh, This was made in the early 90s. And it was a very special place then. It's gone through some radical changes since uh, global warming. And many of these sounds can't be heard anymore. As a matter of fact... Bruce, 40% of my library uh, that I've collected is from now extinct habitats or habitats so radically altered that you can't hear those natural sounds anymore. So did you go back to many of these places to see what it sounded like now? Yes, I have before and after effects uh, from many places on the planet, and certainly not all of them, but, uh, but several of them. Well, we have a recording here from Lincoln Meadow 
in the Sierra Mountains in California. Can you tell me what's going on? Yeah. This is a recording. It was made in 1988 in Lincoln Meadow, which is about 40 miles north of Truckee. The issue was raised uh, by the logging companies whether or not there was going to be any effect as a result of uh, selective logging. And they informed us that there wasn't, that there was going to be no biological effect. And sure enough, when you go out there into the forest and you look at this beautiful meadow, it looks absolutely gorgeous. And the same thing after. I mean, to the human eye, there's no change at all. But let's listen to the sounds of this place. This is the before sound. That's really beautiful. It's so rich, and it's got density and diversity to it. Okay, let's listen to the after. This is a year later, and it's, and 15 years hence, it's exactly the same. You're missing all the richness, though. Nothing there. Now, to the eye, it looks absolutely the same, but the ear tells the truth. I like to say that, uh, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, and a soundscape is worth a thousand pictures. Now, if I go to Google Earth, can I hear the before and after? You will be able to hear the before and after because we plan on using that as one of the layers. So what you actually have are audio artifacts. These are things that no one will hear in the future. That's correct. But, you know, I'm ever hopeful. I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I believe that by bringing these things to people's attention through things like Google Earth, that they're going to want to pay some more attention to it and just get out into the natural world and enjoy it for what it is because it's one of those things that's really an analgesic. It, uh, it helps heal us. Now, your recordings are not limited to just natural sounds from the environment. Am I right? That's correct. You also have um, sounds of, of cities? Yes, we do. And one of the things about Google Earth that was really interesting when we began to formulate sounds of these various places, like, for instance, Lisbon or Paris or London or New York, each of them has their own sound signature. And it's remarkable uh, how different these places sound. Well, uh, let's listen to Lisbon. Do you remember recording it? Oh, sure. It was down near the Taj River. Just walking down the street with mics on my shoulder and uh, so that people wouldn't notice it and just picked up the soundscape. Same way I do pretty much all over the cities of the world. What's the strangest place you've ever gone to record sounds? Wow, what a question. Nobody's ever asked it that way, Bruce. <laughs> uh, I, well, I guess it would be um, a tide pool in Alaska where we recorded anemones. Anemones make sound? They sing. And what we did is we dropped a hydrophone down the mouth part, the center part of the anemone, and then the tentacles, when you're hearing the tentacles wrap around at those gentle little clicking sounds, because it's looking for something of nutritional value. And then when the, it finds nothing of nutritional value, you hear, it sounds like a belch. Now, you've listened to these tapes over and over and over again. Do you get something different when you listen to them and, and view Google Earth? Oh, there's no question about it, because it brings that whole Google Earth experience to life. It gives it life. And that's the one thing that soundscapes do. So, uh, Dr. Krauss, before I let you go, let's listen to one more 
piece of sound. What do you got? Well, we've got one that was recorded by a colleague of mine, Ruth Happel, at uh, a place called Echo Pond in the Adirondacks. Boy, those loons sound uh, ethereal. It's one of the most haunting sounds on the planet. And when you hear these loons, the common loons and the Arctic loons, it just brings tears to your eyes. But at the same time, it makes you feel so good to be there. Well, Dr. Krauss, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. To hear Dr. Krauss's sounds for yourself, you can download the Google Earth software at our website, loe.org. Coming up, the invisible glue that holds the cosmos together, the mystery of dark matter. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, music to the ears for geologists. But first... When it comes to the universe, seems we ain't seen nothing yet. That's because astrophysicists estimate 95% of the cosmos can't be seen. It's invisible. They call the mysterious stuff dark matter. But now astronomers using the Hubble telescope have detected a shadowy ring inside a cluster of galaxies they believe might be the first glimpse of dark matter. Like pebbles in a pond, the ghostly ring is evidence that something big and powerful is affecting the galaxies, only we can't see it directly. Well, when things astronomical leave us in the dark, we call upon Neil deGrasse Tyson. Dr. Tyson is director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and author of the new book, Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic Quandaries. So, Dr. Tyson, can you shed some light? Just what is dark matter? But we have no idea. Well, that's not true. We have some ideas, but none of them are have any experimental foundation yet. Uh, dark matter is a, a little bit misnamed. We should probably think of it as dark gravity because there is a source of gravity out there whose point of origin remains a mystery. So it's really dark gravity. So how do we know that it's out there? Because we see m- massive systems of galaxies where if you add up all the matter in the galaxies, stars and gas clouds, even black holes, add it all up and account for the gravity it should have, it is a fraction of the total gravity exhibited in the entire cluster. So how is dark matter then different from regular matter? All we know is that it exhibits gravity. It behaves normally in that way. It curves the path of light as it goes by which was predicted by Albert Einstein back in 1916. So uh, it does what it ought to do, but we just don't know what what causes it. Now, here's what's interesting. Since dark matter doesn't interact with ordinary matter, it means if you had a blob of dark matter in your lap, you'd see right through it. It would fall through your lap. There'd be no way to contain it because containing something implies it's interacting with the container. And so there's glue holding together the cosmos that is not made up of the matter we have come to know and love, electrons, protons, neutrons, or even the light that gets um, emanated between them. So it's really mysterious stuff. I've heard that wimps might be dark matter. Yeah, there'd be weakly interacting massive particles. Massive in this case would be sort of high mass compared with a particle, not compared with a galaxy. 
And so that's just a, it's an acronym to contain our ignorance of what it might be, suggesting that it's some kind of particle that doesn't interact with our particles. And that, in that way, it would be completely invisible to us. So the, the weak may inherit the earth, but it's the wimps who get the universe. <laughs> you think wimps are weird? How about life on other planets? Well, 12 years ago, scientists discovered the first planet outside our solar system revolving around another star, and since then, they've cataloged over 300 more. The latest of these so-called exoplanets was recently discovered, and Dr. Tyson says this one looks a lot like planet Earth. Here's the challenge. The planet itself at those distances is so small, so dim, we don't, have, we don't see them directly. They're discovered by observing the effect of their gravity on the host star which does show up in your telescopes. We see their effect on the host star. And so the catalog is filled with planets that are like the size of Jupiter and bigger. And we're not thinking that life as we know it would thrive on a Jupiter, maybe on a Jupiter moon, but not on a Jupiter. And so the holy grail out there has been, can we find a planet that resembles Earth? And just recently, one such planet was discovered. What's it called? There's a catalog of nearby stars that are kind of sun-like, and it's called the Gliese Catalog, G-L-I-E-S-E, Gliese Catalog. And this is the one of the stars in that catalog, and so it's named for that catalog. So it's Gliese 581c is the name of the planet. Hmm. What are the uh, odds that it has life on it? Well, I, what I left out is, it's okay, it's great that you find planets, but... What really matters is you want to know how far from the host star is it. If it's too close, if there were any water on the planet, it would evaporate. If it were too far from the host planet, it would freeze. And life as we know it requires liquid water. So there's this Goldilocks zone in the, in the vicinity of every star out there. The sun has a Goldilocks zone. They all do. This Earth-like planet was discovered orbiting the Goldilocks zone of that host star. So... If it's going to have life as we know it, it's a pretty good chance of it, given its location. So how far away is this um, Earth-like exoplanet? Well, you know, I can give it to you in miles, and it'll sound impossibly far, which it is, except it's one of the closest stars to us in the whole galaxy. So it, it, it's a reminder of how vast space is and, and the galaxy is and the, and the rest of the cosmos is. This is, it's about 20 light years away. Well, it's right around the corner. I know, yeah, but you put that in miles, it's like 120 trillion miles. So it would take you, let me see, 75 times 2, 4, 5, take you 300,000 years to get there, going on the fastest spaceship ever built. Well, how would they detect if there were life on this planet? How would we, how would we know? Excellent question. Well, if there's intelligent life with technology, you can imagine just beaming radio signals there because radio waves will get there in 20 years uh, at the speed of light. Radio waves is a form of light. And and if it's 20 light years away, it takes 20 years for the signal to get there. So you send it some signal saying, hi, how you doing? We're over here. Here's some, some stuff we learned about our place in the universe. And then they would receive it and then maybe send a reply. And so this would not be the source of witty repartee, right, because a round-trip conversation takes 40 years. But that could work. But another way to discover life is an emergent field called the search for biomarkers. On Earth, we have oxygen in our atmosphere, and oxygen is a sign that there's life on Earth. If you took away life, the oxygen would all go away. So would the methane. There's certain molecules that are only kept there 
by the action of life. And so you, as you look to other planets, you're going to look for oxygen, you look for methane. So these are biomarkers. And another fascinating biomarker might be smog. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that'd be a sign of intelligence or not, but it's certainly a sign of, <laughs> sign of life. Well, Dr. Tyson, it's been a real pleasure. Enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Astrophysicist Neil Tyson regularly explores the cosmos for living on Earth and hosts the PBS TV series Nova Science Now. So let's say there is life on Gliese 581c. And let's say they're tuning into Earth right now from 20 light years away. They'd just be receiving broadcasts from 1987. That's the year WrestleMania set a record for indoor attendance at a sporting event. Prozac made its debut in drugstores. The world's first conference on artificial life was held, and Michael Jackson was doing the moonwalk. It was an interesting year. I shredded. I was never told not to shred. I shredded because I thought it was the right thing to do. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir! Yes, sir! Can't put it up on the board. Another rapper shot down from the mouth that roared. One, two, three, down for the count to be... Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 29 seconds remaining. The last time the Lakers won the title, they won it in Boston Garden. Sega challenges you with the ultimate video game, the Sega Master System. It's time for uh, Stupid Petrix, and we have folks from uh, all over the country, and they bring their little dogs, cats, birds, barn owls, whatever, and, and they show us these odd little things that they've been taught to do. When you are hot, you're hot, and tonight Ford is definitely hot. The giant motor company reporting almost $5 billion in profits for 1987. And may the Schwartz be... 1987 is heard on Exoplanet Gliese 581C today. Well, 20 years from now, Gleesians might be hearing this. This duet is composed from climate change records, data about carbon dioxide and ice temperatures put to music. Arvid Tomiako Peters transforms geological data into sound using a computer program he created. In geology, you have these layers stacked one on top of the other, and each one of them is a little bit different. So I approach this sort of like a score in music. Arvid Tomiako Peters just graduated from Brown University with a dual degree in computer music and geology. As part of his senior thesis, he created the GeoMusic software. Living on Earth's Ian Gray visited Arvid's studio and produced this audio portrait. I've always loved science, and it's sort of the, sort of the fact that I got involved in geology at Brown was an accident. I uh, took a climate change freshman seminar, and I was like... Yes, this is this is fantastic. I, I got into all this stuff like looking at ice ages and global warming. Then I started to write this Maestro Frankenstein software, which is a multi-track sequencer for scientific data instead of music.
what we're listening to is abundances of different elements in a column of mud from the bottom of a pond in Rhode Island. So there's 12 metals that we found in this mud that we're concerned about, such as chromium, um, arsenic, and lead. Each metal is like a finger on a piano key. So in this case, we have 12 fingers. You can see sort of at the end of the piece that a lot of the pitches get lower. That is an indication of less pollution because of less industry back 150 years ago when that sediment was laid down. So I'm going to create a uh, little very simple uh, piece on the spot. I'm going to play you back some data from the Vostok ice core in Antarctica and turning that into music. And I'm going to play it alongside the record of global ice volume. So the stringed instrument that you're hearing is the amount of carbon dioxide. The tinkly, xylophone-like synthesized instrument is the amount of ice. So the two instruments play opposite each other when one's going down, the other will be going up through several ice ages. The time period that I'm going to play is the amount of time that Homo sapiens has been in existence, the last about 195,000 years. When the stringed instrument carbon dioxide increases, there's not very much ice. When the pitch of this xylophone-like synthesized instrument is higher, there's more ice on the poles. The data that I'm using here shows this really tight correlation between the amount of carbon dioxide and the amount of ice at the poles on the Earth. latest piece I've been putting a lot of work into was a interactive installation where visitors would come in and hear eight deep ocean cores being played back as sound and it's a very sort of ethereal piece. You come in, you listen, there's no notes, everything is continuous tone and just constantly changing pitch. Visitors come in and they can interact with a large um, timeline which they touch and go to any point in time. And what they hear 
are climate records played back on eight speakers that surround them, and they see uh, visuals that show them what's going on in the climate then. Um, you can see in ice ages, everything turns blue in the entire room, and in warm periods, everything turns red, and what sort of evolutionary events are happening, whether when the first homo sapiens are, when rhinos enter America, um, things that they might identify with somewhat. One of the wonderful things I think this music gives a listener a chance to do is relate to and experience the sort of inconceivably long amount of geologic time that there have been. I mean, you can't, a million years, like, you can't even imagine that. And that's just a tiny portion of the Earth's history going back 4.5 billion years. So, if you condense it down to something where you can experience that time in 30 seconds or five minutes, it just sort of brings that time frame home and makes you realize how absolutely short um, your existence is. Our portrait of Arvind Tomiako Peters was produced by Living on Earth's Ian Gray. Next week on Living on Earth, in our closets are three and a half billion wire hangers. Put together, they'd stretch from the Earth to the moon nine times. Put them into landfills and you'd have 200 million pounds of steel. A new company says, hang up the wire. Recycled paper is the way to go. Virtually the only reason that anyone would ever want to have a wire hanger again is to either keep your muffler on or break into your car. Hangers that suit the environment, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with some very cool rhythms. In the Arctic Ocean, ice flows frequently collide. As they buckle and slide over one another, they sound like this. Robert Asher recorded these frozen sheets near the Canadian Abyssal Plain. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Jennifer Percy, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young. Help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Lauren Cox and Amy Fish. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwin. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com.
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.